Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome, friends, to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and I am excited about today's conversation, which offers a fresh perspective on God, evil, and suffering from theologian Thomas J. Ord. Now, we do realize this may fall outside of your particular theological tradition, but we believe thinking through tough topics such as these is healthy for our development as ministry leaders. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian and philosopher, most widely recognized for his contributions to research on love, science and religion, and relational theology. He is a 12-time faculty award-winning professor and teaches at institutions around the world. Tom has written several best-selling and award-winning books, including his most recent with the provocative title, God Can't. Now, on this week's episode, Tom and I discuss an alternative answer to pressing questions about God, evil, and suffering. Tom discusses the biblical support for this theory on God's uncontrolling love and how it applies to what God can and cannot do. It's a fascinating conversation which truly invites us to think deeply. Of course, a topic of this nature cannot be fully covered in such a short conversation, but Tom provides plenty for us to consider for further study. So now, won't you please join me in my conversation with Thomas J. Ord. Tom, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be a part of the conversation. Uh, one of the, the greatest questions raised about God, um, both by people within the Christian faith, and definitely by those who are not believers, revolves around God and suffering. You know, oftentimes, Tom, it's asked, if God is so good, if God is so powerful, if he's so loving, then what, why does he allow suffering? And I, I was actually asked this exact question just four days ago. Like many of our listeners, um, I imagine, uh, we get asked this question regularly. And, and I think one of the ironies of this particular question And the fact that it's one of the most asked questions about God is that so many Christ followers, including pastors, including ministry leaders, really struggle with answering this question. I mean, we know it's one that's asked all the time, but we have such struggle. And and before we dive into really responding to this question and digging in a little bit, Tom, uh, first, I'd like to know, why do you think that as ministry leaders, when we know this is a huge question for so many, Why are we not better prepared to speak into it? Wow, good question. You know, polls say that uh, atheists claim this question is the number one reason why they can't believe in God. Um, I don't have any polls to to support what you've said, but I think you're right. That is probably also the number one question that those of us who do believe in God ask. Uh, We come to the conversation presupposing that God is loving— And we also come to the conversation presupposing that God has the kind of power that God can do just about anything God wants to do, at least anything that's logically possible for God to do. And so therefore, we're stuck with the question. If God is so powerful and can single-handedly stop the genuine evils that we see in our own lives, the lives of the people we care about, the lives of those in the world more generally— then why doesn't this allegedly powerful and allegedly loving God prevent these horrific evils? I know a lot of people who will blame free will. They'll say, you know, blame the creatures. They are using their free will wrongly. Or they'll 
blame Adam and Eve and say, look, we live in a fallen world. But that doesn't get at the bigger question of if God has the kind of power to override free will whenever God wants to or to interrupt the natural laws or processes of creation, why wouldn't a loving God do that in the name of love? Yeah, so so let's dig in a little bit on that. Um, from a biblical perspective, does God have the power to overrule free will? So this is probably going to surprise most of your listeners to hear me say that God simply does not have the power to override free will. In fact, I want to claim God doesn't have the power to control nature and the natural processes, uh, any creature whatsoever. Now, I recognize as soon as I say that word can't, a lot of your listeners are going to say, oh, hold on a second here. <laughs> God has, God can do anything. My God is so big and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. To <laughs> quote a Sunday school song I used to sing. Uh, but if you look carefully at the Christian tradition, we find many theologians, in fact, the majority of Christian theologians, who've said that there are certain things God can't do. God can't do what is illogical. God can't decide to stop existing. Uh, there's certain things that uh, many theologians say God can't do because to do them would, to, would be to go against God's own nature. So, for instance, God can't sin, those kinds of things. And then it surprises many people who begin to look carefully at Scripture to find that there are numerous passages that say that God simply can't do some things. So like, for instance, um, the writer of James says God can't be tempted. The writer of Hebrews says God can't tell a lie. The writer of the psalmist says God can't grow tired. My favorite one, though, is uh, when Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. So there are certain things that God can't do, and my proposal that uh, we want to talk about today is the proposal that God's love is always uncontrolling. So God, because God always loves, and it's God's nature to love, God simply can't control other creatures or creation. That is a fascinating premise because so many people— and the way they define the sovereignty of God, they, they tie it to this idea God is sovereign, therefore God controls it all, right? That's right, yeah. It's their particular view of God's sovereignty. Now, you know, I think any view of sovereignty you have, you need to try to define it or explain it as best you can. Um, I want to claim God is almighty. I, I prefer the word almighty over sovereign, although I could use sovereign if I wanted to, but I like the word almighty because it's the word that most English translators use when translating the Bible. So if you're you're looking at the biblical text, you'll see the word almighty an awful lot and sovereign rarely, if ever. Um, so, but by almighty, I think God is almighty in three senses. First of all, God is mightier than any other. To, to quote the psalmist, God has no equals. Secondly, God exerts might upon all others. Now, I don't think that might is controlling, but it's real power. It's real influence. It's real might. And then thirdly, I think God is the source of might 
for everything in the universe. In other words, to use the more classic theological language, God sustains and creates all that is. God can be almighty in all three of those ways and yet be unable to control anyone or anything. Okay, so if we if we look at God's uncontrolling love, how does that uncontrolling love then relate to this idea that God is, you know, un, unable or prevented from stopping, you know, evil or suffering? Yeah, so it, this is the way I, I like to think about it. And I think this has strong biblical support. It's the idea that God's very nature is love. And because God's nature is love, God loves not only all humans, not only friends, but also enemies. God loves other creatures. In fact, all of creation. God so loved the world, et cetera, et cetera. Then it says that this love is a particular kind of love. It is, as I mentioned earlier, self-giving and others empowering, which means that God simply cannot override the freedom and agency of creatures and creation, can't withdraw it, can't fail to provide it. And so this uncontrolling love is the way that God acts moment by moment at every level of creation and has been doing so, in my view, everlastingly. And so how does that um, uncontrolling love relate to evil and suffering? Well, it says that all genuine evil in the world was not caused by God and also not allowed or permitted by God. We begin the interview by you saying that a lot of Christians wonder, why does God allow evil? All right. Well, I say God doesn't allow evil as if God could stop it. God, in fact, is working all the time, moment by moment, to overcome evil but God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. And this view, I mean, it's super important for a bunch of theological reasons, but also reasons related to personal experience, the experience of uh, survivors, of victims, of those who've been hurt and harmed. Because it says to them, look, God didn't do this to you, and also God didn't somehow allow others to do it as if God could have stopped them. God's love is uncontrolling. God was present there, but God could not have controlled those who harm you. So by saying God could not control those who, who you know, perpetrated the, the harm, then we're saying that God did not allow it. Is that, is right. that what we're saying? That's right. In fact, you know, uh, since this new book that's come out called God Can't that I wrote, mm -hmm. I have been getting tons and tons of letters from people. Um, many of them are survivors of horrific evils. And I thought I would read a couple of them, if you don't mind, because yeah, sure. they, they illustrate the point. Um, and again, I could choose many here, but here are two. Um, this one woman writes this. I've always heard people speak of God allowing something, and it's never sit well in my soul. If God allows one thing, then where do we stop with how much God allows, good or bad? If God can control, then where do we stop with that idea? I have never been able to accept that God controls or allows, because that would mean that God allowed my childhood torture. 
He did not exercise control to stop it. Unacceptable. This bad view of God has led me to drift in and out of a crisis of faith. I thought God was controlling or at least allowing. I had no other way to conceptualize it. And I was told it wasn't okay to ask hard questions. The idea that God can't completes what I had not yet been able to articulate. Hmm. Or here's another one from a guy who writes, my three-year-old son died from a particularly difficult form of childhood cancer. I can no longer hold to the notion that, quote, God is in control, unquote. What loving parent would choose to allow and stand by while their child walked out into traffic, if that parent could have stopped them? I know of none. When it comes to God, there has to be more to it than God simply choosing to allow these things to happen. Saying God can't single-handedly stop cancer is a better way to think. So you see in those stories, people who have been told that God could prevent the horrible things that happen, but God allows them, they, they recognize that that doesn't fit well with a perfectly loving person. We know that perfectly loving humans who could stop evils would do so. Why don't we think a perfectly loving God would stop the evils if God could do so? Yeah, so let me ask you this, Tom. When it comes to uh, miracles, you know, miracles show God's intervention. And so I, I think the question, and, and I've been in conversations around this as well, the question is, well, if God can, uh, can intervene in this situation, then why doesn't he intervene in other situations? Yeah, so it's probably going to surprise some of your listeners to f- discover after what I've just said that I do believe in miracles. In fact, I think this particular theory accounts for the majority, if not all, of the miracles talked about in the Bible. But I don't think that word intervene is a very good word to use. I don't think it's good to use for a number of reasons. One, it sounds like God wasn't already present. It sounds like God's mm-hmm. sort of standing back at a distance or to use more technical philosophical language, the world has causal closure and God is uh, not involved. Instead, I think we Christians want to say, no, God is always present. That's what it means to be omnipresent. God is present to all creatures at all levels of existence every moment. And so a God coming into a situation doesn't make a lot of sense. But secondly, that word intervene is also sometimes used to be, to be synonymous with controlling in the sense of single-handedly getting the job done. I think that if you look at this Bible, you won't find a single example in it in which God single-handedly does a miracle and the Bible explicitly says there was no creaturely cooperation or no conditions of creation that were conducive for that miracle. In other words, I think miracles do occur and God is the primary actor but they're always occurring when creatures cooperate or the conditions of creation are aligned for that miracle. And that then helps us with what, as you mentioned earlier, is what I call the problem of selective miracles. And that is, 
while some miracles do occur, a whole lot of other miracles don't occur. Uh, I don't know about you, but my success rate for praying for miracles is pretty low. And so uh, this helps to account for why there aren't miracles when we think there should be. We can say it isn't God who's choosing not to act miraculously. God is acting, but creatures aren't cooperating or the conditions of creation are not conducive for that miracle. Well, does that lead us then in—let's go with healing, for example. Does that then lead us to—you know, there's there's an argument out there that, well— when we talk about cooperation, um, people having, quote-unquote, enough faith to be healed, is that the direction this, this leads us in, or how would you kind of walk through that? Yeah, good, good question. I think that there are many times in which people have plenty of faith. The theory that I'm proposing here is not a blame-the-victim kind of theory. In fact, I think many people consciously are saying yes to God. They believe that God is a healing God, but their cells, their organs, their bodily members are not cooperating or aren't aligned for the kind of miracle God wants to do. So we don't have to blame the victim in the sense of the, the personhood or the self that but we can say the body is not cooperating. And I think we all, it's not hard to think of examples in which we want to do something, but our bodies don't cooperate with our wishes. I happened to be getting off a plane recently, and the way I was sitting on the plane, my legs fell asleep, you know, that sensation of <laughs> when you, you can't feel them anymore. And so Consciously, I was saying, legs, let's get off the plane, but they were not cooperating very well. Uh, and there's lots of other examples I could use. So um, this would say, no, you don't blame the victim. Uh, you can say people have the kind of faith they need. Uh, it also uh, allows us to sidestep, I think, even worse scenario. And that is the scenario that says, um, you know, God could heal you single-handedly, but you just haven't prayed enough. Mm. You know, God wants to be asked 89 times and you're stopped at 42. You know, that kind of scenario presents a picture of a God who's not perfectly and consistently loving, who somehow needs to be have his ego stroked or something in order to act to do something. So what of those healing miracles that seem to be truly miraculous and it doesn't seem like the body was cooperating, but yet a miracle happens and healing occurs. Yeah, I know of none of those. So um, it may be that some aspects of the body aren't conducive, aren't cooperating, but other aspects are. So um, I know of no examples of healing that explicitly say the body didn't want to cooperate. Now, sometimes it's the case that we are healed and our minds aren't cooperating. In other words, we can think of people who are, let's say, atheists who are saying no to God consciously, but they're still healed. And in that case, we can say, yep, that's because God is working in all portions of our body and our cells might cooperate when our minds don't. So this particular theory can account for all kinds of different healings, but also account for the many times in which people are not healed. Yeah, so, so Tom, um, let, let's throw in a little more because I'm, I'm not sure that I'm clear on then what okay. you mean by the body 
is cooperating. Because in my mind, I'm thinking sure. of, you know, someone who is, you know, crippled from birth, you know, lame from, yes. from birth. And yet, you know, Jesus healed them. They got up, rolled up their mat, jumped around and walked. So what, what do you mean by the body either cooperating or not cooperating? Yeah, so my particular theory relies on a philosophical or a, you, we'll, we'll call it, we'll, we'll stay away from philosophy, we'll call it scientific, a scientific view about the psychosomatic union of mind and body. And it says that our bodies aren't machines, they're organisms. And as organisms, they can respond to their environment in particular ways. And of course, since God is omnipresent, God is a part of the environment of every cell and every organ in our body. And so this means that when God is acting and new possibilities emerge, God can call upon the cells to do things uh, that might not have otherwise been possible. So take the example you give of someone who is, uh, let's say, blind from birth or lame from birth, whatever. Um, this would say that because of Jesus' action and the cooperation of the body, because of these new opportunities or possibilities that emerge, the body cooperates in such a way that they are now healed. They now can see or they now can walk. It would, my particular theory would have difficulty if, uh, there was someone who had no legs whatsoever from birth and, within one second instantaneously grew full-length legs. My theory would have a harder time accounting for that. Uh, but almost every scenario I know of in terms of healing, uh, there's something that's healed or restored that's already present, or there's some kind of growth that occurs over a short period of time, but there's not the kind of instantaneously no legs to full legs kind of healing. Okay, so then let's go back to the uncooperative part. Same same example. Great. Um, then why why would sometimes the legs not be restored, whereas sometimes they are restored and sometimes they aren't? I mean, that's that's a question when it comes to miracles. With your theory, why why sometimes does it happen and other times it does not? Yeah. So there's two possible answers. Mm -hmm. Either a those entities that are capable of cooperation from God don't cooperate. And if you want to wonder why those wouldn't cooperate, it's the same kind of question that we ask ourselves why we don't cooperate with God sometimes and, and do sin. Uh, you know, there's this, that's just part of our, the possibilities we have in our lives. And the other one is that there may be uh, the case in which there's no real cooperation that's possible, but the conditions of creation are not aligned in such a way. So in other words, um, um, it's hard to think of a good parallel analogy. I'm using this kind of language because I want to account for inanimate objects. Mm. So in other words, I, I don't want to say that all creation has free will. I think that the lesser creatures of reality uh, some of which we call inanimate, might have responsiveness or indeterminacy. And so the conditions have to be appropriate. Here's a, here's a good example of, uh, of uh, a miracle in which creation does seem to be aligned, mm -hmm. and that's the crossing of the Red Sea. So um, it could very well be the case that um, 
Moses is brought to the Red Sea at a time in which uh, the the wind comes down the from the hills that has happened more than once in history uh, dry out the land. So in that case, God could predict the weather forecast better than anyone else. Could engage in communication with Moses to lead the people through, and then the winds change and the waters collapse on the Egyptians, etc. So that would be a case in which the inanimate objects of creation are aligned for a miracle. Now, if we can just imagine in which they aren't aligned, I guess I could say there's all kinds of instances in which that happens in our world. Because uh, maybe here's a here's an example. When I was a youth pastor, I remember one time uh, we prayed for our bus to get us to camp. And the bus broke down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the bus had free will, but I think that the uh, whatever the uh, conditions that made up the bus, bus's motor, I can't remember actually what the problem was. But anyway, those things were not aligned for us to get safely to camp. I see. I see. Okay. So when we look at kind of the big picture, for the most part, it seems that people, um, when they're talking about um, evil or suffering in the world, they fall into maybe maybe one of two camps. Maybe we maybe there's some more, but but two primary camps probably. One would be that God controls things, right? So God is, and, and oftentimes I'll use the term sovereignty. God is in control of all things. So there, there's that piece of it, and then the other is well, God allows things, right? We live in a fallen world, and so um, because we live in a fallen world, God allows certain things to happen, and yet in your book, God can't. And what we've been talking about today. You say that there's kind of a, a third way in between those. Is, is that a, an accurate way to kind of talk through this? Yes, it's a very nice way to put it. Yeah. I think a lot of people who use the word allow think that God has the kind of sovereignty, I like to call it single-handed power, to get things done unilaterally, all alone. And I'm making the proposal that if we think, take God's love as coming first logically in God's nature, and this love is relational, it's uncontrolling, then that means God simply can't control others or creation. How would you help someone, uh, and I'm thinking primarily pastors or ministry leaders, who have been kind of um, brought up and entrenched in, in believe wholeheartedly in the absolute sovereignty and control of God, so much so that, you know, when, um, and, and many believe this, when, when evil does occur, suffering does occur, you know, believe that, well, God is, is in control of all things and that has been brought into your life so that you can grow maybe closer to God, grow in your faith, um, and kind of use, you know, that's kind of the, the argument they use around evil and suffering to kind of explain its, its presence. How would you help someone who has uh, a mindset, um, you know, that sort of a mindset come to terms with the the kind of the theory that you're sharing of God's love being uncontrolling, and that is what drives, you know, th- this understanding. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, <laughs> I would say that some people give up on that, I'll call it absolute sovereignty view, when they encounter horrific suffering, when they get raped, when their kid's killed in a car accident, when their son, you know, dies of cancer at age two, uh, they begin questioning that absolute sovereignty view. But there are other people who, even after horrific suffering, continue to 
uh, retain that view. I remember several years ago, back in the Iraq war, I was listening to uh, NPR and they interviewed a couple in Oregon whose son had been killed in the war. And and it was all about, you know, this is God's plan. This is the sovereign will of God. And and for them, that was really comforting. It's not comforting for me. It's not comforting for the vast majority of people I know. But there are some who find comfort in thinking that as bad as things are, as mysterious as this all seems to be, they retain the view that God is in control of all things. And in some mysterious way, this horrific tragedy is God's will. I don't know how to convince them otherwise. I'm not really trying to. I'm here to help the majority of people who look at that view and say, I just can't believe God is truly loving if that's the way things are. Yeah, because um, the challenge is when you experience um, some horrific tragedy, oftentimes it seems like the option has been either to, to accept the view that that God has a bigger plan that we just can't see, you know what I mean? And, and, and in our finite minds, we can't fully understand, but this is all part of his, his, his master plan somehow. So either accept that or, or oftentimes just to reject um, God and faith altogether. Yes, yeah, I think that's very common. And I often, again, there's exceptions to this, but the majority of time, it's easier to look at someone else's pain and say, well, it's just a part of God's plan. Yeah. But when you, when you go through it yourself and you know the circumstances well, it, it's harder for most people, not everybody, but for most people to do that. And so therefore, the only other option people, most people seem to know is, well, there must not be a God at all then. Mm. I'm proposing a way to think about God that I think is strongly biblical, even if it is new to some people, that gives an alternative to a God who controls things and no God at all. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the biblical basis for, for this understanding, because we've talked a lot about the theory and, and, and just kind of the general understanding, but but going to Scripture, where where do you find support for um, you know this this uncontrollable love and the, the existence of evil and suffering in the world? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, early on in my life, reading the Bible, I became convinced that the themes of love were dominant. Mm. I don't want to say that every passage in the Bible points to a God of perfect love, because, you know, there are some Old Testament passages that I don't think present God as loving. But the vast majority of passages in Scripture, I think, present a loving God. And the clearest view of God I think we have is in Jesus Christ. And so I have a very Christocentric hermeneutic. In other words, I read the Bible through the lens of Jesus' love. Now, this still led me to wonder about whether or not God could control. There seemed to be lots of instances in which it talked about creaturely action, and it was fairly easy for me to say, well, this must be free agency. But there are other passages that didn't talk about creaturely agency, whether human or non-human. Some of them, in fact, just talk about God acting. And I, and most people I know, I used to think, well, those must be examples of God single-handedly bringing something about. You know, the Bible says God did X. Mm. And I just interpreted that as, well, God did it all alone. Didn't take any creatures into account, just single-handedly brought about some result. 
I've since, though, begun to realize that the way we use our language, both in the Bible, but also in just common everyday instances, we often only identify one actor when we know that other actors, or at least we can imagine other actors, were also involved. To use an illustration uh, that maybe some of your listeners won't like, um, when the Patriots, the New England Patriots football team, won their sixth Super Bowl last February, the headline in the newspaper said, Tom Brady wins sixth Super Bowl. Hmm. Now, that headline was correct, but if you think that Tom Brady was the only player on the field for the Patriots that day, you don't understand football well. <laughs> now, when the Bible says God does X, do we have to think that God was the only actor? Or can we think that God was the primary actor, that these things wouldn't have happened had God not acted, but there was also either creaturely cooperation or the conditions of creation were conducive for these things to occur. The vast majority of biblical stories that talk about God acting also mention other creaturely factors and actors. And those that don't, why don't we just assume that there was creaturely actors and factors? Especially, especially when we read some even miracle stories that don't mention God at all, and yet we think God must have been present and acting. You know, like in the New Testament, when uh, Peter walks down the street and people just touch his rags and they, they're healed. There's no mention of God there. But every Christian I know thinks that God was the source of those miracles, even though God is uh, working through Peter. So why not, if we're going to insert God in those biblical passages where God's not mentioned, why not insert creatures in passages in which creatures aren't mentioned and God is mentioned? In fact, let me make a, a, a very bold statement. I know of no story or biblical passage in the entire Bible, from the creation of the universe, to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, to the resurrection of Jesus, to every miracle, that explicitly says God alone was the actor and there were no creaturely factors or actors involved. I can't think of a single one in the entire Bible, and I've asked lots of biblical scholars for examples. There's, they're just not there, at least that I can find. And so those cases in which only God is mentioned and creatures aren't mentioned, why not for the sake of having a consistent theology, especially a consistent theology of love, assume that there are other factors and actors cooperating with God? Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating to, to kind of process through. And like you said, it's a fresh perspective. So I'm sure a lot of people yes. listening right now are like, what? Like, yeah. wait a second. <laughs> but um, and obviously in, in, you know, 30 minutes or so of time, we can't we can't dig too deeply in that. And um, so if people, Tom, um, want to learn more and want to kind of better understand what you have, um, you know, pulled out of scripture and, and your understanding of God's nature um, and this uncontrollable love, how, how can they learn more? Well, probably the easiest introduction to it is this uh, new book that came out this year, and I'm happy to say has been a bestseller, with the title, God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. Now, there's a previous book that was is a more scholarly book, uh, 
that goes into more details. It's called The Uncontrolling Love of God, An Open and Relational Account of Providence. So if they want more details, they can look at that one. But I, I encourage people to start with God Can't because it lays out the ideas in the most accessible way. Excellent. And if people want to connect with you, Tom, um, how, how can they find you? You can find me on my uh, website, which is my full name, Thomas J. Ord, two O's in that last name. Uh, but also you can connect with me on various social media channels. Um, I'm, I'm all over the place. So just Google my full name and you can find some way to get a hold of me. Excellent. And we'll have links to those books and also to your website in the show notes. So, Tom, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and uh, challenging us. Um, to think uh, maybe more deeply, and as I said, just a fresh perspective on um, arguably the the greatest question that people ask, um, and when it comes to you know those those deep questions about God, and uh, just thank you for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome, Jason. And let me just say in closing mm-hmm. that uh, I recognize that this idea and these ideas are going to be challenging. I don't think people are going to change their minds overnight. But if they'll uh, dive into these ideas, I think they will find them to be quite plausible and far more biblically supported than they might have thought initially. So thanks, Jason. Excellent. Well, thank you, brother. God bless you. You too. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android. And so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.